0: Modernly, the King, The Making of a Mind by John Anspray, Chapter 5 The Social Mission of the Christian Church The Requirements of the Theology of the Social Gospel One of the principal sources of King's conception of the prophetic role of the Christian Church in challenging and transforming social structures was Walter Rauschenbusch's Theology of the Social Gospel. During his first year at Crozer Theological Seminary, he read Rauschenbusch's Christianity and the Social Crisis for George Davis's course, Great Theologians. Davis had studied at Rochester Theological Seminary, where there was a strong emphasis on the doctrine of Rauschenbusch, who had taught there. In Stride Toward Freedom, King acknowledged that Christianity and the social crisis left an indelible imprint on his thinking by providing him with a theological basis for the social concern he had developed as a result of his own of his early experiences rauschenbusch received most of his theological training at rochester theological seminary as a consequence of his studies there he adopted the belief that the primary task of the church must be to lead individuals to seek their own personal salvation. This almost exclusive emphasis on individual salvation was dominant in the churches of his day. It was only when he became pastor of the Second German Baptist Church of New York that he came to realize that social reform is essential to the mission of the Christian church. His parish was located near Hell's Kitchen, one of New York City's worst slums. He witnessed the ugliness and desperation of the lives of his parishioners as they struggled with the damning effects of economic exploitation, especially during the depression of the 1890s. He asserted that it was these experiences and not the church that produced his prophetic passion for social reform. He explained that his passion... Came through personal contact with poverty and when I saw how men toiled all their life long, hard, toilsome lives, and at the end had almost nothing to show for it, how strong men begged for work and could not get it in hard times, how little children died. Oh the children's funerals they gripped my heart. This is page one hundred sixty four. These experiences compelled him to re examine the Bible and the Christian tradition to ex- determine whether they confronted social evils. As a result of this re examination, he concluded that the prophets Jesus and the primitive church not only concerned themselves with the salvation of individuals, but also systematically and consistently condemned the evils rooted in the structures of society. Rauschenbusch devoted the first section of Christianity and the social crisis to an examination of the life and thought of the Old Testament prophets. Since he believed that they had been an integral part of the thought life of Christianity, he contended that the prophets were convinced that that God demands righteousness and nothing but righteousness and that it was this fundamental conviction that distinguished them from the ordinary religious life of their day. They regarded sacrificial ritual as a harmful substitute for and a hindrance to ethical religion. Hosea proclaimed, I desire goodness and not sacrifice. As I affirm the need for social justice, your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Relieve the oppressed. Secure justice for the orphaned and plead for the widow. Micah also stressed the need for social justice. Justice. Will Jehovah be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousand of rivers of oil? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good that what doth Jehovah require of thee but to do justly and to love kindness and to walk humbly with thy God? Amos and Jeremiah denied that God had commanded sacrifices at all when he constituted the nation after the exodus from Egypt. They proclaimed that God required only obedience. Rauschenbusch maintained that insofar as the people believed that the, the traditional ceremonial was what God required of them, they were indifferent to the reformation of social conduct. By rejecting the need for sacrifice, the prophets could affirm that ethical conduct is the supreme and sufficient religious act. Rauschenbusch emphasized that the prophets were actively involved in the public affairs of their nation and that some of them were statesmen of the highest type. I'm reminded of Savonarola in Florence in Italy, the last pre-Reformation prophet. When they insisted on righteousness, they were concerned about the social morality of the nation rather than about the private morality of detached, pious souls. He contrasted their principal concern to combat social injustice and oppression with the major concern of churches in his own day to condemn the private evils of intemperance, unchastity, and the sins of the tongue. The prophets began to develop a special concern for the individual life only when foreign invaders crushed the national life of Israel. But he contended they insisted on personal holiness when then because it was the condition and guarantee of national restoration. Rauschenbusch also stressed that the Sympathy of the prophets was totally and passionately on the side of the poor and the oppressed. They condemned the land hunger of the aristocracy, the ruthlessness that would reduce the poor freeman to a slave to a debt, and the venality of the judges who had a double standard of law for the rich and the poor. The prophets' concern for the poor was manifest in their theology when they viewed God as the husband of the widow, the father of the orphan, and the protector of the stranger. When the prophets conceived Jehovah as the special vindicator of these voiceless classes, it was another way of saying that it is the chief duty in religious morality to stand for the rights of the helpless. Jeremiah and the prophetic Psalms identified the poor as a class with the meek and godly and used rich and wicked as almost synonymous terms. Rauschenbusch maintained that the fact that Israel was in the unique position of having a library of classics in which the spokesman of the common people had the dominant voice could serve as a strong proof of the divine inspiration of the Old Testament. King found in the Hebrew prophets a continual source of inspiration for his struggle for social justice. In his letter from Birmingham jail, he explained to the clergyman who criticized him that he had come to Birmingham because he was compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond his own hometown. Just as the prophets of the 8th century BC left their villages and carried their, thus saith the Lord, far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, In his youth, he had heard frequent references to the prophets in his father's sermons and had studied the prophets in a course on the Bible at Morehouse College. But his study of Rauschenbusch developed his understanding of the social implications of the prophetic mission. His understanding of this mission deepened during his studies at Crozer Theological Seminary and Boston University. King's writings, sermons and speeches abounded with references to the prophets. He extolled Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, and Jeremiah for standing up amidst unjust power structures and forces of religious idolatry, and for declaring with prophetic urgency the eternal word of God. In a Christmas sermon on peace, in The Trumpet of Conscience sounds like that's some kind of a journal, maybe he defined some of the elements of his dream of freedom equality, justice and peace by appealing to the words of Amos, Micah and Isaiah. I still have a dream today that one day justice will roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. I still have a dream today that in all our state houses and city halls men will be elected to go there who will do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with their God. I still have a dream today that one day war will come to an end, that men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, that nations will no longer rise up against nations, neither will they study war anymore. I still have a dream today that one day the lamb and the lion will lie down together and every man will sit under his own vine and fig tree and none shall be afraid. I still have a dream today that one day every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill will be made low. The rough places will be made smooth and the crooked places straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. In his references to the prophets, King most frequently quoted Amos' demand, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He contended that even as Amos was maladjusted to the injustices of his day, so too he did not intend to adjust to the evils of discrimination, segregation, religious bigotry, militarism and violence. He stressed that Amos was seeking not consensus but the cleansing action of revolutionary change. And he called on ministers to imitate Amos by speaking out for righteousness. While admitting that not every Christian minister can be a prophet, he affirmed that some must be prepared for the ordeals of this high calling and be willing to suffer courageously for righteousness. In his special affinity for the message of Amos, King again resembled DeVolf, who in a theology of the living church had asked Where is such blazing denunciation of hypocritical religion and social unrighteousness as the prophecy of Amos, unless indeed it be in the words of Jesus? Rauschenbusch developed the notion that Jesus by his words and deeds was similar to the prophets in many ways. Even though in the poise and calm of his mind and manner, and in the love of his heart, He was infinitely above them all. Jesus too opposed the ceremonial elements of religion and insisted on the ethical, sided with the poor and oppressed and was deeply concerned with national and social life. Jesus began his preaching by affirming, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is now close at hand, repent and believe in the glad news. Rauschenbusch maintained that Jesus' parables, moral instructions and prophetic predictions indicate that the kingdom of God was the center of all his teaching, as recorded by the synoptic gospels. The goodness which he sought to create in men was always the goodness that would enable them to live rightly with their fellow men and to constitute a true social life. He found in the message of Jesus a definition of goodness that King later found also in personalism. All human goodness must be social goodness. Man is fundamentally gregarious and his morality consists in being a good member of his community. A man is moral when he is social. He is immoral when he is antisocial. The highest type of goodness is that which puts freely at the service of the community all that a man is and can be. Love was the fundamental virtue in the ethics of Jesus because love is the society-making quality. In preparing men for the noblest social order of the kingdom of God, Jesus aimed to energize the faculty and habits of love and to stimulate the dormant faculty of devotion to the common good. Love with Jesus was not a flickering and wayward emotion, but the highest and most steadfast energy of a will bent on creating fellowship. This doctrine helped to predispose King to accept... The definition of agape as an act of the will that for the sake of community transcends expressions of eros, which are so dependent on emotion. Rauschenbusch explained that since Jesus desired to establish a society founded on love, service and equality, he felt it necessary to warn of the profound spiritual danger involved in the pursuit of wealth insofar as it is difficult to obtain riches with justice, to preserve them with equality and to spend them with love. In preparing people for the kingdom of God, Jesus revealed that his basic sympathies were with the poor and oppressed. In his early preaching, Jesus appealed to the passage of Isaiah where the prophet proclaimed good tidings to the poor. Release to the captives, liberty to the bruised, and the acceptable year of the Lord for all. And Jesus stated that the time of fulfillment of this proclamation had come. When he wished to offer proof to John in prison that the Messiah had come, he affirmed that the helpless were being assisted and the poor were listening to glad news. His healing power was at the service of any wretched leper, but not of the doubting scribes. His parables reveal that he knew how much a strayed sheep or a lost coin meant to the poor. No man would have laid on the colors in the opening description of dives at his feasting and Lazarus among the dogs as Jesus did. He had not felt vividly the gulf that separates the social classes. In concluding his treatment of the social aims of Jesus, Rauschenbusch examined his revolutionary consciousness. Jesus was aware that he had come to kindle a fire on the earth. While loving peace, he knew that he had come to bring the sword. His revolutionary spirit permeated the Beatitudes where we should least expect it. The kingdom of God would bless those whom the world had not blessed the poor hungry and sad would be satisfied and comforted and the meek would inherit the earth his revolutionary spirit was evident also in his attack on the religious leaders and authorities who were the pillars of the jewish state he rejected their brand of piety as hypocrisy and criticized their law as inadequate moreover he showed that he was liberated from spiritual subjection to existing civil powers such as Herod. Furthermore, his revolutionary spirit was apparent in his desire to abolish those titles and badges of rank in which former inequality was encrusted so that the only title to greatness would be distinguished service at cost to self. King also referred to the revolutionary spirit of Jesus. When asked by a white citizen of Montgomery why he and his associates had come to destroy a long tradition of peaceful race relations, he explained that Montgomery, before the boycott, had only a negative peace in which the Negro had too often only accepted his state of subordination. He then referred to the words of Jesus, I have not come to bring peace but a sword and interpreted them to mean I have not come to bring this old negative peace with its deadening passivity. I have come to lash out against such a peace. Whenever I come a conflict is precipitated between the old and the new. Whenever I come a division sets in between justice and injustice. I have come to bring a positive peace which is the presence of justice, love, yea, even the kingdom of God. Rauschenbusch indicated that although Jesus aimed to establish the kingdom of God which involved a thorough regeneration and reconstruction of social life, Christianity in modern times had not undertaken the work of social reconstruction. He argued that the church As the incarnation of the Christ Spirit on earth, the organized conscience of Christendom should be swiftest to awaken to every undeserved suffering, bravest to speak against every wrong, and strongest to rally the moral forces of the community against everything that threatens the better life among men. He rejected the conception of religion that regards as religious only what ministers to souls or what serves the church. If now we could have faith enough to believe that all human life can be filled with divine purpose, that God saves not only the soul, but the whole of human life, that anything which serves to make men healthy, intelligent, happy and good is a service to the Father of men, that the kingdom of God is not bounded by the church, but includes all human relations, then all professions would be hallowed and receive religious dignity. The church has the moral obligation to condemn all the conditions, especially the economic conditions, that induce a sense of despair and stifle spiritual growth. The church should belong to the tradition of the Hebrew prophets and reflect the revolutionary spirit of Jesus. Therefore it should use its moral authority to protest all forms of exploitation and oppression. A Christian preacher should have the prophetic insight which discerns and champions the right before others see it. King claimed that Rauschenbusch had rendered a great service to the Christian church by insisting that the gospel deals with the whole man, not only with his soul, but also with his body and his material well-being. He indicated that after reading Rauschenbusch, it was his conviction that any religion which professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the social and economic conditions that scar the soul is a spiritually moribund religion only waiting for the day to be buried. He reaffirmed the judgment, a religion that ends with the individual ends. King maintained that Christian belief regards the body as sacred and that any realistic conception of man must involve a concern about his material well-being. We have both a privilege and a duty to seek the basic material necessities of life. Religion must seek not only to change the soul of the individual so that he can be one with himself and with God, but also to change the environmental conditions so that the soul can have a chance once it is changed. Christians must think not only about streets in heaven flowing with milk and honey, but also about millions of persons who go to bed hungry. They must think not only about mansions in the sky, but also about slums and ghettos. The ministers must refer to the new Atlanta and the new Memphis, as well as to the new Jerusalem. Religion at its best is aware that the soul is crippled as long as the body is tortured with hunger pangs and harrowed with the need for shelter. The minister who works with the poor knows how poverty influences morality. It is infinitely harder for the hungry men with hungry children to respect the property of others than it is for the well-fed and the well-housed. While rejecting any religion that would ignore social conditions, King was careful to empathize that he would also reject any religion that would ignore the otherworldly concerns and be completely earthbound. He stated that such a religion is reduced to an ethical system and sells its birthright for a mess of naturalistic pottage. During his crusades, King at times felt compelled to remind Christian ministers of their social mission. He indicated that while prior to the Montgomery boycott some Negro ministers were aware that the projection of a social gospel is the true witness of a Christian life and therefore were active in NAC, NAACP groups. Too many Negro ministers reminded indifferent, remained indifferent to social problems. He asserted that much of this indifference was due to their Sincere feeling that ministers were not supposed to be involved in earthly matters, such as social and economic improvement. They believed that their task was to preach the gospel and keep men's minds centered on the heavenly. As the boycott developed, most Negro ministers in Montgomery quickly abandoned this narrow conception of their responsibility. Then too, during the boycott, King had to confront the claim of Dr. E. Stanley Frazier a white segregationist, that the Negro ministers who led the protest were wrong since the task of the minister was to lead souls to God and not to generate confusion by getting involved in transitory social problems. King challenged this claim by stating that if one is truly devoted to religion of Jesus... He will aim to eliminate social evils, since the gospel is social as well as personal. During the Albany movement, he explained, I feel I am called to preach wherever evil and injustice lie. During the Birmingham movement, he emphasized for Negro ministers the necessity of a social gospel to supplement the gospel of individual salvation. I suggest that only a dry-as-dust dry religion prompts a minister to extol the glories of heaven while ignoring the social conditions that cause men an earthly hell. He reminded the Negro ministers that they were more independent than any other persons in the community and called for their strong leadership in the freedom movement. In 1967, he could still lament the fact that they were still that there were still too many Negro churches that were so concerned with the future good over yonder that they conditioned their members to adjust to the present evils over here. During the Memphis movement, in his last sermon, he proclaimed that the minister must say with Jesus, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor. I would agree with that. Preaching the gospel to the poor is no good if we aren't also helping them to deal with their problems. The two are inextricably linked. Rauschenbusch's conception of the kingdom of God inspired King to develop further his own notion of the nature of the beloved community. The ultimate goal of all his endeavors in a theology of, for the social gospel Rauschenbusch stated, The kingdom of God is humanity organized according to the will of God. That is great. The kingdom of God is humanity organized according to the will of God. And affirmed certain convictions about the ethical relations within the kingdom by interpreting it through the consciousness of Jesus. These convictions reinforced what king had learned in davis's first in davis's classes first since christ revealed the divine worth of life and personality and since his salvation seeks the restoration and fulfillment of even the least it follows that the kingdom of god at every stage of human development tends toward a social order which will best guarantee to all personalities their freest and highest development. The kingdom of God would redeem social life from religious bigotry and from all forms of slavery in which human beings are treated as mere means to serve the ends of others. Second, since love is the supreme law of Christ, the kingdom of God implies a progressive reign of love in human affairs. Rauschenbusch maintained that the advance of the kingdom is evident whenever love rather than force and legal coercion regulates the social order. Such an advance would be manifest in the redemption of society from political autocracies and economic oligarchies. The substitution of redemptive for vindicative The abolition of constraint through hunger as part of the industrial system and the abolition of war as the supreme expression of hate and the completest cessation of freedom. Third, the highest expression of love is the free surrender of what is truly our own life, property, and rights. Rauschenbusch emphasized also that the surrender of any opportunity to exploit individuals, though a lower expression of love, may be the more decisive one. He contended that this involves the elimination of the possession of private property in the natural resources of the earth and the abolition of any condition in industry that would make monopoly profits possible. Fourth, the reign of love tends toward the progressive unity of mankind, but with the maintenance of individual liberty and the opportunity of nations to work out their own national peculiarities and ideals. Rauschenbusch affirmed that the church must exist for the sake of the kingdom since the kingdom is the supreme end of God, I just want to remind us also that justice and righteousness are the foundation of the throne of God from which God himself rules and reigns his kingdom. Let's read on. He maintained that the spiritual authority over the of the Church depends on the degree to which it fulfils this purpose. The institutions of the church. Its activities, its worship, its theology must in the long run be tested by its effectiveness in creating the kingdom of God. He argued that if the church were to view itself apart from the kingdom and to find its aims in itself, it would be guilty of the same sin of selfish detachment as an individual who selfishly separates himself from the common good. Despite his acknowledgments of Rauschenbusch's role in his own formation, King did not hesitate to indicate that he regarded what he regarded as defects in his thought, mindful of Niebuhr's realism with its emphasis on the reality of collective evil, King felt that Rauschenbusch had been a victim of the nineteenth century cult of inevitable progress and hence a superficial optimism concerning human nature, and that he had come dangerously close to identifying the kingdom of God with a particular social and economic system. It seemed that King should have qualified these criticisms, since Rauschenbusch emphasized also the power of a kingdom of evil. Thus, in a theology for the social gospel, he asserted, depravity of will and corruption of nature are transmitted wherever life itself is transmitted. And in the chapter, The Kingdom of Evil, he maintained, yet we ought to get a solidaristic and organic conception of the power and reality of evil in the world. He contended further that humanity in seeking the kingdom of God on earth will never have a perfect social life. In Christianity and the social crisis, he warned, At best, there is always but an approximation to a perfect social order. The kingdom of God is always but coming. DeWolf also contributed to King's vision of the social mission of the Christian church. DeWolf's definition of the purposes of the organized church in A Theology of the Living Church revealed his conviction that the church should use its spiritual power to resist the many forms of social injustice. While emphasizing that the principal purpose of the church is the cultivation and expression of the sacred koinonia, a sharing fellowship that participates in the spirit of God and pursues the more excellent way of love, and that the church must seek the truth and exhort its members to act upon the truth disclosed, as well as provide the means necessary for communal worship and prayer. De Wolf also affirmed that the church must reach beyond its own borders and work for the extension of love, truth, justice, and peace in the world. De Wolf maintained that in response to the challenge of Christ, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. I'm reading on page 173. The church must establish schools and hospitals, support the training of doctors and nurses, assist agencies for the relief of poverty, and minister in many other ways to multitudes outside its own membership. Moreover, the organized church by its words and deeds must strive to share with others the riches of the kingdom within its own fellowship. A church that is not missionary and evangelistic demonstrates neither that it does not either that it does not possess a life that it values or that it lacks the degree of love that is concerned that others share in that life. Such an organization does not participate in the true spiritual church and therefore is not a true church. Furthermore, the organized church must confront the institutional sources of oppression and injustice. The church must incessantly raise its voice in prophetic warning against the social evils in all the institutions of the day. The church must not try to be a state or an economic order, but remaining in its own role as conserver and voice of the spiritual life within. It must continually speak to the state and the economic order. In all its judgments it must avoid even the appearance of being one organization competing for power and prestige among other organizations. Its peculiar power lies not in self-seeking but in searching for truth and justice and peace for all in the spirit of Jesus Christ. For this too is part of being first by being slave of all. The church must regard social evils as the denial of God, rebellion against the kingdom and blights upon the priceless eternal souls of men. DeWolf asserted that while social evils which are tolerated so embitter many persons that they turn against their fellows and become unable to see the light of God. A prophetic act that challenges social injustice and opposes sinful barriers to brotherhood draws many lonely and despairing persons into the kingdom of love and faith. In Responsible Freedom, DeVols indicated that the prophetic function of churches tends to be in conflict with their pastoral function. Thus, when the preacher performs the prophetic Function by emphasizing the failure of individuals, churches and society to exemplify Christian ideals as when he pronounces God's condemnation of racism or calls for policies of aid for the poor or for a reduction of expenditures on military preparation to allow for more expenditures on housing and training for the unemployed. Many people are offended and find it more difficult to accept their preacher's assistance with their personal problems. DeWolf maintained that there is no resolution to this conflict if one conceives of the prophetic function as one of preserving a comfortable peace of mind in individuals and pleasant social compatibility in the congregation. But he contended that such a conception contradicts the message of the New Testament. The peace of which the Gospel of John speaks is not the soft peace of conformity with the world. It is the peace of the Christ who has challenged earthly powers, is about to be crucified by them, who gives peace even while promising tribulation, and who says he has overcome the world. The obligation of the past is not to promote a comfortable self-satisfaction that would interfere with spiritual growth, but rather to foster a peace that involves repentance, sacrifice and risk. DeWolf added that a preacher is not exercising the prophetic function if he resorts to angry denunciations that express his own pride personal insecurity, or repressed hostility. To be truly Christian, a prophetic utterance must arise from love for the victims of injustice or other evil and desire to bring all who are involved into a community of forgiveness, grace, and mutual assistance. wolf asserted that the pastoral and prophetic functions do not really conflict with each other, but rather are mutually supporting. At times only a caring personal ministry can excise the race prejudice, violence and evil of individuals, and thus can bring them Christ's healing as well as relief to the victims of their vicious conduct. While the church should publicly condemn the hypocrisy, cruelty, injustice and folly of society or of people belonging to certain types or classes in terms worthy of an Amos, Isaiah or Jesus, it should minister to individuals guilty of social injustice in a positive way which will remove their fears and hostilities, expand their perspectives, and eliminate their prejudiced activities. Other thinkers contributed directly to King's understanding of the social role of the church. As already indicated, his identification with the social philosophy of the personalists helped prevent him from accepting any religious approach that would ignore the redemption of the social order while seeking the salvation of the individual. In his dissertation, he emphasized Tillich's conviction that the theologian is involved with the whole of his existence, with the healing forces in him and in his social situation. King's tendency to appropriate the ethical thought of Gandhi would have reinforced his rejection of any religion that concerned itself only with the salvation of the individual. In an address at Howard University, he referred to the fact that Gandhi had conceived of man as a social being and had stated that man's individuality comes out best when he works for the social. He then quoted Gandhi's contention, I do not know of any religion apart from human activity. Gandhi had also asserted religion which takes no account of practical affairs and does not help to solve them is no religion. One of his fundamental teachings was that service of the poor is worship of God. Of course, we think of Mother Teresa and Francis of Assisi and such like, and Sadhusundas Singh as well. In his definition of the prophetic role of the contemporary church, King maintained that the churches must make it clear that that segregation, whether legal or de facto, is morally wrong and sinful and contradicts the noble precepts of the Judeo-Christian tradition. He contended that the problem of racial prejudice remained America's chief moral dilemma. The churches must affirm that every human life is a reflection of divinity and that every act of injustice mars and defaces the image of God in man. The churches must denounce the immorality of segregation because it denies the sacredness of human personality and deprives man of freedom, the quality that makes him a man. The quality that makes him a man. Nothing can be more diabolical than a deliberate attempt to destroy in any man, or woman for that matter, obviously, his will to be a man and to withhold from him that something that constitutes his true essence. The churches must denounce the immorality of segregation also because it rejects the unity men have in Christ. King also stressed the obligation of the churches to use their channels of religious education to make the ideal of brotherhood a reality by exposing the irrationality of the fears and suspicions that are the roots of race-hate. Churches can teach that anthropological evidence has refuted the myth of a superior or inferior race. They, the churches, can show that Negroes are not innately inferior in academic health and moral standards and that they are not inherently criminal. The churches can say to their worshippers that poverty and ignorance breed crime, whatever the racial group may be. And that is, it is a torturous logic to use the tragic results of segregation as an argument for its continuation. King maintained that churches can and should aim to reduce racial prejudice by teaching that the true intention of the Negro is not to dominate the nation, but to live with all of the rights and responsibilities of a first-class citizen. Churches can assist also by mitigating the prevailing and irrational fears concerning intermarriage. In general, churches can lessen the fears of some Whites about integration and the fears of some other whites about social disapproval. If they are too liberal on the race question, by emphasizing that man owes his ultimate allegiance to God, since love for God and devotion to His will casts out fear. King insisted that churches must take the lead in social reform. They must seek to keep open the channels of communication between the Negro and white communities, especially through interracial ministerial associations. He was careful to stress that if churches are to be effective in their attack on evils in society, they have to remove the yoke of segregation from their own bodies. They also must take an active stand against the injustices and indignities that Negroes and other non-white minorities confront in housing, education, police activity and in city and state courts. They must support strong civil rights legislation and work for economic justice. Economic insecurity strangles the physical and cultural growth of its victims. Not only are millions deprived of formal education and proper health facilities, but our most fundamental social unit the family is tortured, corrupted and weakened by the economic by economic injustice. The church cannot look with indifference upon these Glaring evils. Since the Church is the guardian of the morals of the community, it cannot be indifferent to such a profound moral issue as discrimination in employment, a deliberate strangulation of the moral, physical, and cultural development of the victims. Therefore, the Church is obligated to create the moral climate in which fair employment practices are regarded positively and accepted willingly. The church should provide the spiritual leadership and guidance to millions of whites who deplore the evils of discrimination in employment, but who fear to speak out. The church should encourage and support the federal government when it refuses to give contracts to employers who engage in discrimination or where it determines to make examples of industries by dramatically cancelling contracts, where through discrimination the principle of brotherhood is violated. King's early activities as pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery revealed some of his vision of the social mission of the church. When he became pastor, the parish had a Sunday school, a Baptist training union that developed Christian leadership and a missionary society that brought the message of the church into the community. He recommended the establishment of several committees that would revitalize religious education, channel and invigorate services to the sick and needy, engage in social and political action raise and administer scholarship funds for high school graduates and encourage promising artists the congregation enthusiastically approved these recommendations one of the duties of the social and political action committees was to emphasize for the congregation the importance of the NAACP and the necessary necessity of being registered voters the committee created a voting clinic to instruct unregistered members of the congregation in the pitfalls of discriminatory registration procedures and during state and national elections it sponsored forums and mass meetings to discuss the major issues it published a bi-weekly newsletter to inform church members about social and Political issues. At that time, King joined the local branch of the NAACP and within a year served on its executive committee. He also was vice president of the Montgomery chapter of the Alabama Council on Human Relations, an interracial group that aimed through educational methods and action to achieve equal opportunity for all the people of Alabama. As the only truly interracial interracial group in Montgomery, it was able to keep open the channels of communication between the races. Some of the members of this group and of the Social and Political Action Committee later were to become prominent in the bus boycott. Although King felt the need to criticize some Negro ministers for their lack of active concern about social evils, he was not he was most willing to acknowledge the crucial role of the Negro church in his crusades. In his letter from Birmingham jail, he stated, "I am grateful to God that through the influence of the Negro church the way of nonviolence became an integral part of our struggle." In 1965 he was he asserted I'm happy to say that the nonviolent movement in America has come not from secular forces but from the heart of the Negro Church. The Negro Church had perpetuated belief in the Judeo Christian principles of love and justice that were at the center of the nonviolent movement. It had prepared blacks for a practical commitment to nonviolence by its emphasis on the dignity of the self the value of sacrificial love, the merit of unearned suffering as exemplified in the life of Jesus, and the reality of a personal God who demands righteousness and seeks justice for his children. King indicated that although it was probably true that most of Montgomery's blacks did not believe in nonviolence as a way of life they were willing to employ it as a technique because it was presented to them by trusted leaders as a simple expression of Christianity in action during the Montgomery boycott. He stressed that he was motivated chiefly by the social gospel, and he and his associates aimed to channel the religious fervor and spiritual energy of the Negro church into militant nonviolent action. He explained that Christian love always Sorry, Christian love allows people to protest with wise restraint and calm reasonableness. When Gunnar Jan presented him with the Nobel Peace Prize, Jan contended that the Montgomery Negroes could not have reached such widespread agreement to spurn the use of violence if they had not been so deeply religious. In preaching the need for black liberation, King relied on the black religious tradition by referring not only to New Testament themes such as suffering, redemption, and resurrection, but also to Old Testament themes such as exodus and deliverance from bondage. Thus he referred to the southern segregationists as pharaohs who had employed legal maneuvers economic reprisals and even physical violence to hold the Negro in Egypt, in the Egypt of segregation. He often assured his followers that they would reach the promised land of freedom and justice. It would not be difficult for these, for those immersed in the black religious tradition who listened to these references to come to understand his campaigns as religious crusades. King could say that the nonviolent movement came from the heart of the Negro church also in the sense that the Negro church was the organizational church or the organizational structure should I say that made the Montgomery boycott and other crusades possible. The Negro church had been a center of educational, economic, social, cultural and political activities as well as a source of leadership for the black community it had provided its members with that degree of independence from white domination that allowed them to create organized resistance to oppression during the montgomery boycott the negro church revealed its effectiveness as an agent of nonviolent protest it was at, at the churches that the meetings were held that initiated and sustained the boycott. These meetings served as necessary channels of communication since Montgomery did not have a Negro-owned radio station or a widely read Negro newspaper. The meetings included a statement by King, reports from the strategy, finance, program, and transportation committees, speeches, hymns, scripture readings, hortatory preaching, Freedom songs and discussions from the philosophy or of the philosophy of nonviolence in his statements, he emphasized the immorality and impracticality of violence At each meeting, there were prayers for the success of the meeting, for strength of spirit to carry on nonviolently. You can imagine that must have been difficult to keep persevering through with non-violence so honor must be given to the people for that strength of spirit to carry on nonviolently, for strength of body to walk for freedom for the opponents and for all men that they might become brothers and live in justice and equality this is very moving the meetings rotated from church to church with speakers from various protestant denominations and with Catholic participants in commenting on the willingness of the speakers to transcend denominational lines by their presence King stressed that the mass meetings accomplished on Monday and Thursday nights what the Christian church had failed to accomplish on Sunday mornings also the churches made possible the carpool that was essential to the continuation of the boycott Initially, the churches raised most of the funds for the carpool and provided many of the dispatch centers. Furthermore, the churches were a source of special inspiration for the black community when scores of ministers were arrested for their role in the boycott. When the people saw how their ministers were willing to be jailed for the cause, they could readily identify with their references to Jesus and Gandhi. While King could point to the contributions of the Negro Church to the nonviolent movement, he frequently expressed his disappointment with the white Church for not exercising its prophetic function and not being in the forefront of the struggle for freedom and equality. So often, it the Church is an arc defender or arch-defender of the status quo. That is such a stark truth. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. Even though he affirmed that he was in the rather unusual position of being the son, the grandson and the great-grandson of preachers, that he loved the church, that he was fundamentally a clergyman, a Baptist preacher, and that the church was his life, still he felt compelled to reiterate the judgment of Dean Liston Pope of Yale Divinity School in the Kingdom Beyond Cost. The church is the most segregated major institution in American society. King conceded that the National Council of Churches had repeatedly condemned segregation and had requested its constituent denominations to issue similar condemnations and that most of the major denominations had endorsed the action of the Council. In 1946, the Federal Council of Churches, later succeeded by the National Council of Churches, had issued a statement rejecting segregation. The Federal Council of Churches of Christ in America hereby renounces the pattern of segregation and race relations as unnecessary and undesirable and a violation of the gospel of love and human brotherhood. Having taken this action, the Federal Council requests its constituent communions to do likewise. As proof of their sincerity in this renunciation, they will work for a non-segregated church and a non-segregated society. In 1963, the National Council of Churches budgeted $300,000 to support civil rights activities. And in 1965, in one of its several projects, it built voter education centers in Mississippi to overturn segregation. King also King also acknowledged that the Roman Catholic Church had declared that segregation is morally wrong and sinful. Do you agree there, David and Judah? And budgies? Segregation's wrong, eh? Hey? Yeah. After an audience with Pope Paul VI in 1964, he stated, the Pope made it palpably clear that he is a friend of the Negro people and asked me to tell the American Negroes that he's committed to the cause of civil rights in the United States. In 1967, the Pope stated the Second Vatican Council clearly and repeatedly condemned racism in its various forms as being an offense against human dignity. While King approved of the sublime statements of Protestant and Catholic authorities, he complained that these stands were far too few and that in actual practice they moved all too slowly down the local churches. In 1964, in an article, the churches will follow, Dr. Benjamin Mays, former president of Morehouse College, who had helped Inspire King to enter the ministry lamented the fact that on the local level the majority of churches would practice open membership only when it was considered safe to do so and that all too many ministers would lead in the desegregation of the churches only when there was widespread acceptance of the idea in their local communities. Mays stated that if the local churches had At once supported the 1954 Supreme Court decision on school desegregation on the basis of religion and morals, the turmoil and bitterness of the previous ten years might have been avoided or at least greatly reduced. King felt disappointed with the white church as early as the Montgomery boycott. At the inception of of the boycott he was confident that the white ministers and priests of the south would prove to be among his strongest allies. But his optimism was soon shattered as some of them refused to understand the freedom movement, misrepresented its leaders and became open adversaries while all too many other clergymen were more cautious than courageous, and remained silent behind the anaesthetizing security of stained glass windows. I'm reminded of the Martin Niemöller quote. First they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. We are all responsible to speak out for each other. We are all responsible to speak against injustice. Martin the King said, "Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are all responsible. If we don't speak out for others, eventually, nobody's going to speak out for us. We are responsible. Just want to pray, Father, help us, help me, Lord, help us to be courageous and just stand for justice and righteousness and truth, Lord. If we." Say we love you and we don't stand up for the least of these. We are hypocrites and liars. Lord, forgive me for being a hypocrite. Help me, Lord, to be courageous and to stand up, Lord, in Jesus' name. And be counted. Help us, Lord. So back to Martin Luther King. In 1962 he stated, As a minister of the gospel, I'm ashamed to have to affirm that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, when we stand to sing, In Christ there is no east nor west, is the most segregated hour of America and the Sunday school is the most segregated school of the week. When he came to Birmingham, he hoped that the white religious leadership would see the justice of his cause and would assist in transforming the power structure. But once again, his hopes were dashed when eight Protestant, Catholic and Jewish clergymen from Alabama Issued a statement criticizing his demos- demonstration as unwise and untimely, as extreme measures inciting to hatred and violence, and as directed in part by outsiders. Well, this could be nothing further from the truth. Oh, what cowards. It's read on the statement appealed to the black community to withdraw support from the demonstrations and to unite locally and rely on negotiation among local leaders and the courts to achieve a better Birmingham. In expressing his disappointment with the white ministers King did add that criticism should not be directed against those ministers who believed that segregation violated the will of God and the spirit of Christ were faced with alternatives of taking a vocal stand and being fired or of keeping silent in order to remain in the situation and do some good for race relations, and chose the latter alternative. He recognized that the replacement of such men by ministers favoring segregation would have only impeded the struggle for freedom. However, he warned that a minister must never permit the notion that it is better to remain quiet so as to help the cause to become a rationalization for doing nothing. The most important thing is for every minister to, do, to dedicate himself to the Christian ideal of brotherhood and be sure that he is doing something positive to implement it. Although King did not mention it in his writings, he must have experienced further disappointment while with the White Church when some ministers criticized him for being one of the founders of the Gandhi Society for Human Rights. In 1962, the Reverend John Morris, Executive Director of the Episcopal Society for Cultural and Racial Unity, described the Gandhi Society. As a symbol of the departure from Orthodox Christian tradition of key spokesmen who might otherwise have led in the renewal of the church in areas connected with race, he accused King and others of seeking a new creedal foundation for nonviolent action and a way of life in Gandhi's thought. It is a new crucifixion when Gandhi displaces Christ as the source of power and motivation for those who call themselves Christian. The way of the cross is sufficient encouragement to non-violence for Christians. Morris contended that one may rightly honor Gandhi and his followers, but avoid turning esteem into a new religion. He concluded his critique by denying that King had allowed an authentic role for Christ in his non-violence. Well, that is simply not true. The Christ of the overturned tables and crown of thorns calls us to the same commitments and goals. A residual readiness to follow such a Christ might have led to a greater awakening had Dr. King felt called in such directions. New prophets must come forward now if Christ is not to be shunted aside in favor of humanistic loyalties which man elevates higher than faith. The reason King did not allude to this criticism in his writings may have been that four years before, he had already rendered it groundless by his explanation and stride toward freedom, that he combined the love ethic and spirit of Jesus with a nonviolent method of Gandhi. However, Moreover, his prophetic and pastoral ministry rooted in his Baptist faith was a consistent revelation of the role of Christ in his life.